If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. All right, uh, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll jump into this. Father in heaven, thank you for these people, for this church, uh, for the chance to be together. We thank you for those who are, who are with us in person, for those who are tuning in online, and we just pray that this time would be helpful, useful, that you would guide us through it. I pray that these um, kind of complex ideas in this passage would become real to us and helpful and meaningful, and I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It's good to be back with you all. Um, as, a, as a family, we were the ones out of town the last couple of weeks, and so we've, we've been gone. And just, uh, just briefly, we got to see uh, Kenton Morgan uh, from, from here at Mission, uh, you know, who were, have just recently moved to Utah and go stay at their place on the way up. And we got to hang out with the Udarians. And fun fact about the Udarians Church is they have a pastor, Nick, um, by the way, which I did not know. And, you know, our pastor, Nick, has one sleeve of tattoos. Theirs has two. So I know, pretty crazy. And it's like, what's, what's going on out here in Montana? So we're not the only ones with the pastor, Nick. And, and Michaela even said, but do you have an owl on your chest? And he said, no. He's like, but I have a lion, and I'm about to get a rhino. And we thought, we need, if there was some kind of pastor dating app um, where you could find a pastor friend, um, I think... <laughs> These two Pastor Nicks could, could probably get along. So anyway, um, that's where we've been. And so thanks, uh, thanks to Ray um, and John and, and Mike, who, who really you know, did a lot to hold it together. And then honestly, to everybody here, who a lot of you help out in so many ways uh, with the church. So thank you. Uh, we just, we've thought about it several times in the, in the past couple years, what it was like back when we started a church with just a few friends. And I preached for like, what was it, two to three straight years every Sunday, and it's pretty awesome to get to go on vacation and know everything's going to be fine, and not only fine, but done well and thoroughly and being prayed for under the prayer team and all that. So we see that. We're thankful for that. So appreciate you. And um, yeah, just to, just to jump back in, I did I listened to the, to the sermons because we're coming back into Galatians, and I missed the beginning of that. And so really grateful for what Ray uh, had to say and just kind of skillfully bringing the, the book of Galatians back around. I thought it takes particular skill to tell everybody that their pastor um, picks through trash, but to do that in such a way as to present it as a redemptive metaphor. Um, so you guys, if you haven't appreciated Ray and the elder that he is, you should, you should after that. I was impressed. And, uh, and John did a great job kind of queuing us up for this evening, talk, talking about how you know, really Christ brings us together 
on his day um, through his body, his blood, and his baptism. So this evening, um, this scripture to me is a bit of a cluster of potentially misunderstood con- concepts. And I think it's, there's a lot in here. I don't know if you felt that as, as we read it, but to me, there's a lot that needs to be uh, unpacked. It was very interesting to, uh, to walk into church and to have the tootle conversation that we had. And so here's where you get to this little intro to the book is where, you know, there's just this, I don't know, I just stumble into this conversation, right? Where, um, where Jason and Cassie are reading tootle to, to Aiden and kind of reflecting on what they don't like about the book um, because the message of the book is you just have to stay on the rails, right? And it's this, it's, it's moral. It's, it's just, just keep on the rails, do the right thing, and, and, uh, and then you'll become a, a big, fast steam engine. And, uh, and they, were, they were talking about feeling kind of like, ah, oh, uncomfortable with that. And, uh, and my, my immediate reaction, I, and I, I'm, I'm saying this, I, I like it. I like Tootle. Um, I, I blew through it. I read it just now. And I think here's, this is, um, if you want a, a synopsis of my sermon, um, is Tootle prepares us for Jesus. So wait for it. Here we go. But there's a lot, there's a lot in this passage. Um, so I'm going to do, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to march a little bit slower through this section of scripture and kind of give a tour of the text, if you will. And we're just going to march through the concepts because I think there's a lot that could go over our heads. And at the end, I'm going to try to just give three key relationships. And if you know anything about our church, when I've been on a break and I've been away for a while, I, I might have a lot to say. So um, I'm going to, I'm not even going to lie about it. It's probably going to happen. So two are the texts, three key relationships. I'm jumping into it. We're starting in Galatians 3, verse 29. We're going to put these up on the, on the brick here for you to look at. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. You all know that, right? You live like it every day. Um, do you? I mean, what, what, is, what is that? What is that about? Um, to open this service, I read from Genesis 12, and I know some of you may have walked in or tuned in after, after that, um, and if you're listening to a recording of it, you won't hear it, so I'm going to explain this a little bit. But Genesis 12 is this critical piece of ancient literature. Um, all of the Abrahamic religions anchor their lineage back to this event, back to Abraham uh, being given a promise by God. Um, in Genesis 12, Abraham is chosen by God, and we don't really have a reason why. We're getting this, this sort of lineage of, of people after Noah, and here's uh, Abraham's dad is going to move to Canaan, but he stops short. And then God comes to Abraham and just says, go, uh, go to the land that I promised to you, and, and makes him this promise about his, his family uh, being blessed and all the nations of the earth uh, being blessed through him. And so this is a really key piece of Christian belief is that God comes and freely chooses Abraham and makes him a massive promise and how unlikely it is that it comes to Abraham because his wife can't have kids. This is a really so so makes a seemingly impossible promise and and is it because uh, Abraham is doing so well and doing so many good things? Well, the Bible sure doesn't say that. That's not what the Bible says. Um, not only would God give him the land that was promised, but make him a great nation and bless all the nations. And there's this kind of idea 
um, in there that this is all the, it's pontata etne in Greek, like all the nations. I know it's a Hebrew text, but I'm saying this is, this is a phrase that gets kind of brought together and, and you see it all throughout the Bible. You see it in the New Testament. God is bringing all the nations together under the gospel. So we're, we're doing a class called Perspectives in, in September. That's what this whole class is about, is this idea that all the nations are invited in, all the families of the earth are invited in, and Abraham gets this massive promise, and he believes it, which is kind of shocking, right? He believes it. So what, what does it mean um, for Abraham to believe this promise and to get uh, this promise. What is this promise? What does this promise guarantee? I just told you the Abrahamic religions all believe in this. That's Islam. That's the Jewish faith. That's Christianity, right? They all believe that this promise came to Abraham, and this is a cornerstone moment in history. Well, we believe as Christians that Christianity gives not only the most compelling um, answer, uh, and but even the most generous answer. It's what the whole New Testament is really about, um, it, it's saying that this, this promise means that God had had in mind not only to benefit um, Abraham, not only to benefit Abraham's, Abraham's family, not only to benefit others by their association with Abraham's family, but actually to expand the family of Abraham to include anyone who had faith like Abraham, anyone who would hear his promises and believe in them, that it would, it would include all of them in and bring them into a, a unique covenant or promise with God. And that's why this whole letter to the Galatians exists this, that we're reading. That's why Paul in this letter is, is referencing this. He's saying, look, the, the Galatian people are like us. They are not physical heirs of Abraham. They're not Jewish people. These are Greek um, and Roman, uh, Greeks under the rule of the Roman Empire, and Paul is saying this promise of blessing to the nations that went to Abraham is for you. Um, it's a promise for you. And just like Abraham, you haven't done anything special. You didn't earn your way to God. God came and gave the promise to you. So in other words, you're here by, by God's gift, by God's grace. And that's why we're studying Galatians. That's why we bother to come before God um, that was given to a, a people group other than ours in the first place. That, that's, why, that's why we do this. Um, and interestingly, Israel, the nation we tend to think of, you, you hear so much about it. Um, you know, we're, we're quite attuned to what goes on in Israel these days as Christians. In your Old Testament, there's a ton of stuff about, about Israel. Um, but even Israel, Abraham's family, wasn't a family or a nation until God chose them in Abraham and made them a unique people. The same is true of us. We weren't, we here, we weren't a family. We weren't bound together until God did something in our lives, chose us and brought us together. And this isn't our doing. None of us handpicked each other, right? Um, we, we didn't build this family. God did. Which is why we believe there's a good reason to have hope because God calls people to him. He always has, which means that anyone, anyone can come to God. Anyone can be included. No matter what you've done, no matter your past, no matter your family, um, anyone can be included. Now, that makes sense if you think big picture that God, so he creates the entire world, all people, 
right? Why, why would it be that God would pick a, a specific ethnicity as his favorite or something like that? Why would he do that if he created all people? Why would God only accept one religion, you know, that there, there's one perfect path to God? Why, why would God do that? He, he created all people. And the answer is he, he doesn't do that. He never did that. God, as the scriptures teach, and which is the, the generous way, calls together a family from all families. It's not a better religion. It's not a path to God. He calls people simply to himself. And he gives and offers grace. And this is why Paul has the audacity to call Christians, and, and you and I, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, family. He calls us heirs in the scripture, heirs of the promise of God. And that's an incredible, incredible statement. If you are Christ, you are heirs of a promised blessing. So there you go, Galatians 3.29. That's, that's the idea. You're heirs of this promise because God has chosen you, brought you into his family. That's what makes that scripture true. Now, Galatians 4.1. He says, I mean that the heir, and now we're kind of switching into some new imagery. And so you have to, have to track with this here. He's bringing in a metaphor. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. Paul's now getting back to his point, the point of the book of Galatians. And the point that he's getting at is that there's a purpose um, of the law, the law of God. And there's been some debate in Galatia as to whether or not these Galatian people were keeping the law enough, if they could be included in Jesus. And Paul has been saying, yes, yes, they can. And so he's trying to work this out and explain this. And he's explaining why keeping the law is not the path to being accepted by God. Um, he's, he's explaining why not only is that not true, he is actually opposed, vehemently opposed to the laws being placed in between the Galatian Christians and their acceptance into the family of God's people. And to do that, he employs the imagery of a Roman household. And he's trying, to, he's trying to help us understand, why did God give a law? Why is it here? And in a wealthy Roman household, there, there would be bonded servants, and some of these servants would have, would have kind of given themselves into the family. And then there would have been others, their, their family, who would have been born into that servitude, into that household. And likely he's talking more about the ones who were born in because the metaphor is about two children. And those bonded servants in the house would have grown up alongside the heirs of the father, father's estate, okay? So children in this house would have grown up next to the, these bonded servants, and they would have learned uh, very similar things. They would have learned the rules. They would have learned basic things about life. And so here Paul is saying, look, the heir of the house legally owns the house, in, the, in their law structure, this is the heir, that the house is coming to them. But experientially, this child is under the authority of what he calls guardians and managers that his father placed over him. He isn't free to do as he pleases. He is maturing. He needs discipline. He needs watch care. And so does the child of the bondservant in this Roman house. They're, they're both learning the basics. They're both being disciplined. They're both learning life skills. They're both learning what it takes to manage a home. One someday will inherit the home, one will not. 
But he's saying the experience of both of these children is that they're under the rules of the household, under the guardians and managers. So what's the point? The point is everyone needs laws. Through, through rules, we are formed and shaped. There's, there's something to life that we all need this. This is my pro-tootle moment, okay? Is I'm saying everyone needs to understand what the basics are, what the laws are, what the rules are, what is right, what is good, what is true, what works. Everybody needs that. And just a quick aside here, I know that this like, slave imagery is an important thing to acknowledge. Paul here, he, he isn't condoning the, this Roman servitude system, by the way. He, he's, not making any, he's not making it the issue at all. He's not speaking for it, against it. He's utilizing something that they're very familiar with to, to explain a spiritual truth. Today, we might say something like this. In a, in a well-run family business, the child of the owner is no different than the hired clerk. Both are under the business manager. That would be maybe, maybe today's strong argument. Our family, we co-own a little retail store. We have an employee who isn't related to us at all. And her, the expectation of her is she's supposed to live according to her, her job description, follow the employee handbook, be on time, and finish her tasks when she's on the clock, right? That's the expectation. Um, if our daughter works at the store someday, even though she is in my will, and if we still have the store someday, may inherit it, right? Until that day... She'd be expected to do the same things if she became an employee of the store as well. She'd be expected to follow the rules, follow the, the guidebook, to be there on time, to when she's there and on the clock, she's expected to fulfill her job description and work according to the rules of the store. That's, that's normal. That's reasonable. This, that's the kind of idea that Paul is saying, that these, these two in this Roman household grow up under the same things. They have the same experience, Okay. So now, 4.2. Galatians 4.2. In the same way we, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Here, Paul's doing an interesting thing, and this often gets missed right here. He's talking about himself, a Jewish person, who grew up trained in the Jewish law. But he's writing this book to people who did not grow up in that, who were not in that space. They didn't grow up necessarily um, under the law of God. They may have been aware of these Jewish texts. They may have read them, but they wouldn't have considered themselves to be under that system. But Paul is now saying, we. He's including himself and them uh, under the same experience. This is, this is kind of an important thing to understand where he's going with this. So Paul's grouping himself and these non-Jewish people and saying we were all under the, the elementary principles. And there's some debate as to what this means. You know, when you read, when I, when I say the word elementary, you may think school, right? Elementary school, basics, right? The elementary principles. And that, that's not a bad translation, but, but there's another way you could put it. It would be the elemental principles. That's another way to translate the word. And so some have believed that this has more to do with the natural elements, and usually... They would, they would say, well, the, the Greek, the Greco-Roman people believed in the spirits or gods that were behind these elements. And, and that's, you know, when you consider some of Paul's other wording in Galatians, he talks about angelic beings and, and things that are spiritual. There's some, some grounds to that. That could be possible that that Paul could be referring to that. But in whatever case, 
if you were to view this as the basics or kind of the, their beliefs, the, the Galatians' beliefs in the, the gods that were behind the, the elemental principles of the world, at the end of the day, it ends up being, it doesn't really change the meaning. Paul, um, in, in the letter, talks later, later to the Galatians about the things that the elemental principles teach them to do. And he says some of them might be this, to try to observe the feasts and festivals of their culture the right way. And both Jewish people and Greek people believed they had to get their calendar right. They had to know exactly the right days. They had to understand the exact days of their calendar because they had to worship their gods on the correct days. If you were, if you were Jewish, you'd been given festivals. If you were Greek, you'd been given festivals. And if you were going to please the gods, you had to do them right. You had to do them on the right days. You had to get it correct. And he said that the elemental principles or these elementary principles teach you to observe the feasts and the holidays the right way. You have to get these things right. And elsewhere, to the Colossians, Paul talks about the elemental principles, and they tell you things like don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Like, it's, it's rules. Don't, don't touch that. That will make you unclean. That will be bad for you. Don't handle that. Don't get anywhere near that. And he says, those principles are not powerful enough to restrain our desires. They are lacking. And we know this to be true. And we see it all the time because, you know, at least some of us have this, which is what the book Tootle is about as well, this thing where if there's something, so Tootle sees the, the flowers out in the field and he's supposed to stay on the tracks, but what does he want to do? Knowing he's supposed to stay on the tracks does not supersede his desire to go see the flowers. His, the desire is stronger, right? And, and we see that in our own lives. How many of us can look back at something in our lives and go, look, I knew that wasn't the right thing to do, but I did it because I really wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, if you're not nodding your head, it's because you don't want to talk about it, and that's okay. But there's, there are things where the desire overrides your knowledge of the principle. Whether the principle is, this is going to hurt, or the principle is, God says no, or mom says no, or dad says no, or, you know what, that's going to send you right down a slippery slope in all kinds of trouble, young lady. Whatever it is, the principle, the desire is pretty strong. And even if you don't do the thing, you sure do think about it. And if, it, if what Jesus you know, says is true, that when you think about something, it's as good as if, as if you've done it, then, then we're all in that same boat. So that's what the elemental principles teach. The principles like these, they don't change your heart's desire. The best they can do is make you appear better to others or, or to yourself. That's, the, that's probably about the best that they can do. And Paul says people... All people, until Jesus, were under law, under principles. It could have been God's law or, or just the laws that you know are true. But that was elementary. It was preparatory, like a guardian. And when Jesus came, we were offered something more. Okay? Um, Romans 12, Paul, or sorry, Romans 2, Paul says, all people have a law written on their hearts. And... and this is sort of what I'm saying. Even if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, I guarantee you grew up with some rules. And if you happen to grow up in some kind of crazy situation where nobody was teaching you anything, I guarantee you still had some sense within you. I shouldn't taste that, touch that, do that. It came from somewhere. And even sometimes it's, it's completely 
internal. We all, to some degree, feel like there's a courtroom. It may be public opinion. It may be our God concept. It may be our own standards for ourselves. But we internally measure ourselves against something, and we ask, am I acceptable? Which can lead us to do actually some decent things. It's not all bad. We don't want to be caught in, in the wrong and suffer consequences. That, that has a place. From a, a, like When you're raising a kid or you know, founding a society, there's a place for that. That's an okay motive to keep people from speeding on the road, right? That's, it's not all bad. Um, we don't want to experience shame. We don't want to be seen as wrong or broken and incomplete. It tempers us in many ways with or without God but see, it's a law, it's a, it's a courtroom. It can have a role in our lives, but it also has a negative role in our lives in that it condemns us. It condemns us, if we're honest. Um, you don't have to be a Christian to deal with this. You can read Brene Brown or something like that, Power of Vulnerability or The Gift of Imperfection. I mean, this is, you've got somebody kind of outside of the, the spiritual realm saying, look, you look we can't, we can't, Condemn ourselves. That we would be stuck. That's no way to live. You have to open up about your problems and your issues and embrace that. Right? I mean, these these things are being seen and they're being said. Um, these messages resonate because inwardly we deal with condemnation because of the law, whether it's God's law or just the general principles that we know are true that we don't live up to. We fail to live up to the standards of others, but, but our own standards as well. And we battle with the question of who am I? Am I acceptable? Am I accepted? We might hide. We might attention seek. We might exude neediness. We might exude self-sufficiency. Whatever it is, we're dealing with this courtroom. We're dealing with these deeper questions. So look at what the God of the Bible does, because we're in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. You're looking for a, a friend or a partner to heal this ache in your soul. Well, they have the same ache. They have the same problem. If you're looking for another person, it will be the blind leading the blind. It'll be two bankrupt people trying to offer each other a sense of financial stability. We can't be for someone else what we cannot be to ourselves. And when we're in the same boat, we can't fix each other. We need something deeper. So look at what this covenant, this promise of God does for us. Galatians 4, 4 to 5. Here Paul is getting into the solution. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, and therefore born under the law. Notice he doesn't say born into Israel, right? Born the way everybody's born. We're all born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And of course, now he's still in that metaphor of the Roman home, so he's saying sons. It's absolutely true, sons and daughters. This is not a male thing, right? He's in the middle of a metaphor. The goal is that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. Basically, this is saying when God knew it was the right time for humanity, and some have speculated that this was the right time linguistically, technologically for Jesus to come and you know, I, I can see some of those arguments. I don't know if that's what Paul was saying, but whatever the, whatever the case, when God decided it was the right time, God superseded his law and all the laws we all know by entering in himself into our situation under the laws himself in Christ 
living a life that checked all of the law's boxes, always staying on the tracks, being shameless and perfectly acceptable to God, always prioritizing God the Father, always loving his neighbor as himself, and then dying according to the curse of the law, being rejected by God, his, who turns his face away from him on the cross, suffering death and utter shame, all the things that we're trying to get out of, that Brene Brown's trying to help us out of, right? And, and though he didn't deserve it, he did it in order to signal and solidify that, in fact, the law's guardianship was over. And that now, we could relate to, to God the way the eternal son always has. And Jesus, I guarantee you, has always been accepted and secure at the right hand of the Father, and, and you have now been gifted in Christ that status, and you, can, and you can experience it. So Galatians 4, 6 to 7 says, because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son if a son, an heir through God. So here, what you see him saying is that in his metaphor of the person who was just, you know, in the house but didn't own anything, that, that was all of us to some degree. In Christ, we're actually transferred into being, we're adopted in. So we know what it was like to be not an heir. Now we know what it's like to be an heir. We're brought in, we're brought close. And this title, Abba, was this familial and personal title that, that Jewish people would not have been accustomed to using toward God themselves. This is not something that they would pray. They didn't, you know, I've heard people, you know, trying to be very relevant in our American culture, and they say, oh, Papa, Daddy, God. And, you know, and I can just imagine kind of even modern day, you know, Jewish folks being like, this is weird to say. And it is, and, and I don't know that we're just supposed to throw it around, but the point here is that we can have this deep, close intimacy with Jesus, with, with God through Jesus, I should say, that is shocking. Because they always thought of, of God as pretty abstract, pretty distant, Lord, right? King, like powerful, good, benevolent, yes, but, but close, family, no. And this is a shocking thing that Paul is saying, that, that the spirit of Jesus enters into our hearts and his spirit cries out, Abba, Father. So we can start to experience this intimacy with God. And because Jesus relates to God this way, and because God in his incarnation and in entering into our situation moved us from being under the law like a servant boy by grace into being given the gift of his status as an heir, we now can experience God like a child experiences a good and loving father. We can know that we are loved. We can know that we are accepted. We can know that something good awaits us. Even though we're still learning, we're still imperfect. I mean, remember in the metaphor, we're still a child in the house. Right? We're still a child in the house. We're not mature. We don't have everything. We're still growing up. We're still struggling. We're going to make mistakes. But our relationship to the family has changed. In other words, the negative impact of the law, the shame, the guilt, the ache of unacceptance um, that, that, can, that can drive us away from God and, and others, it gets 
undercut to where even though we're still a child, we're still growing up, we still have a long way to go, we can see ourselves as loved, forgiven, and redeemed. Which, by the way, to understand all those things, look at, look at the wisdom of God in this. To understand that you were loved even though you didn't deserve it, accepted even though you didn't deserve to be accepted, forgiven even though you'd done wrong, you need the law to see those concepts. If there's no law of God, those concepts are meaningless. The, the depths of what God has done for us are only possible when you see what the law demands and see that God supersedes it in Christ and accepts you anyway. And not just anyway, but on the merits of Jesus. So, that was a lot in there, right? That was a lot. And, and by the way, toodle never gets to Jesus. But here's, here's, my, here's my little thing for, for all of you parents, Jason, Cassie, everybody out there. When you give a law concept to your kid, it cues you up perfectly to tell them about Jesus. So they need it. So, good job, Toodle. So there's a lot in there, okay? So um, we went on our vacation. We went with the uh, Udarians to Yellowstone for one, like, day. And we're, like, running through, you know, it's like, all faithful, bison, elk, you know, no moose. We didn't, and then waterfall and home. Okay, I understand. That's what just happened to you from Galatians 4, and that's okay. Um, so just, just believe me that you can get in there and dig into this, and it is rich. And, and seriously, like if you become a theologian someday, which many of you could if you wanted to, you would just spend the rest of your career trying to figure that out. Okay? So that's, mine the depths of that, you'll never get done. But, but have fun. There's good stuff. In, I mean, that's, the law has deep meaning. What Christ has done is so important. Let me give you these three key relationships. This is a summary of what I just said. The scripture taught us that our relationship to the, or sorry, here they are. Your relationship to the lawgiver, your relationship to the law itself, your relationship to Jesus. These are the, th the three things you need to remember. Your relationship to the lawgiver as a Christian, what it is, to the law and to Jesus. The scripture taught us that our relationship to the giver of the law utterly changes our, our approach to the law. How you view the law utterly changes depending on your relationship to the giver of the law. The slave-like relationship is that the, the law leads to acceptance and it's, and, you know, or ever getting things right. Like this is your path to not fail. This is your path to get it right. This is your, th that's, the, that's the relationship of the person who isn't an heir of the giver of the law. And, and it can't be anything else. It's, it's utter bondage. It's only gift it can give you is to restrain your sin. Otherwise, it, it doesn't have, you know, it can, it can keep you from messing up more. And that is, by and large, better than not having it. It is. But, it's, but it doesn't change your heart. It doesn't change your desires, as Paul has told us. If you keep the law, um, or sorry, if you fail to keep the law, God's law, popular opinion, or your own sense, you will feel shame, guilt, defeat, rejection, lack of value, and you'll usually pile upon other people what you inwardly experience, Right? I mean, we've seen this. We see this. The judgmental person, the angry person, the critical person, they're passing along what they feel is aimed at themselves, right? And, and I'm, I'm not talking about just all of you. I am talking about myself. It's, we are always in this state of like, get the mirror off of me. I don't want to look at me. Look at you. You stink, right? Like we're, we're aiming at people, the things we don't want to deal with, 
within ourselves. It's classic bully on the playground. Why is this bully being so mean to this kid? Because he's deeply insecure about himself. Like, we can see it from the outside, but when it's us, we cannot see it. That's the effect of the law when you're not, like, in the family. But when you see yourself as an heir, when you know you're accepted, loved, safe, forgiven, and adopted, when those are all facts deeply embedded in your soul, God knows me. He knows everything about me. He knows all of my failures. Actually, the cool thing about the little toodle book here was the engineer guy who trains him in school knows that he's out getting off the tracks, and he comes up with this plan to get him back on the tracks. That's, that's a good thing. Like when God sees you that way, he sees all of your flaws, and instead of going, that's it, you're done, he goes, look, I love you. I'm with you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not kicking you out of the family. What does the, the father of the prodigal son do? He throws his arms wide open. Come home. Right? That is what God is offering to us. And when you see that, when you know that, when you know that nothing could ever separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, your, your soul is anchored. And then the second thing happens. Number two, your relationship to God's law changes, okay? It changes. When you know the lawgiver, when you know his love, when you know who he is, your relationship to the law changes. I mentioned our store earlier, and many of us have probably seen family businesses that get passed down, and sometimes the kids don't want it, or they utterly change it because they know they hated how their parents ran it, right? We don't always see the perfect examples of this. Um, One of these was El Taco in Tucson. El Taco, this place was quality, not traditional fast food. And, um, but there was something about it. They had, some, they had some stuff down and the family got sideways and it's gone except for one food truck. But even that food truck kept the recipe. They don't run it anything like their parents, but they kept something, right? Anyway, that's, that's my Tucson moment for you, El Taco. But so that happens. Family, family businesses, people, people don't keep them. They turn from it. But in the best cases, when a parent was a good business owner and they ran a, a respectable business and they did something the kid looks up to, right? The child, what does the child do when they inherit the business? They carry on the legacy, the patterns, the values that made it great, some of the laws within that very business. They, when, when you think, my parents were amazing, I love the business that they created, when you inherit it, you don't tear it down. You might change it a little bit. You build on it. You, you appreciate what's been given to you. This is what happens to us with the law. When you know that the lawgiver is good and wise, then you love the law and, and you enjoy its benefits. And you want to understand it. You want to use it well. You want to, to know it, right? You want to know the heart behind it. And you do because you know the giver of the law. You want to pass along the blessings of it because it's been such a blessing to you. That's true of of the law of God and the life of a Christian. That's why when we read the Psalms, right, you have Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the law, who meditates on it day and night. I mean, did Jesus just come in and go, you know what, Psalm 1's over? No, he did not. He loved the law because he knew knew the lawgiver. And when you know the lawgiver, the, the law becomes a blessing to you. Psalm 19, your precepts make my heart rejoice, right? 
I mean, how can people lo- like read Leviticus and like happiness? I mean, when you know the giver of the law and you understand the heart behind it, you can, you can say, what does this mean? This is beautiful. Like God has done good things in my life and they came from these foundations. I want to know more about it. Psalm 119 says, says the same. Interestingly, when you love the lawgiver and the law, you start asking slightly different questions. When you read the law, instead of saying, how do I keep this to be accepted? How do I not mess up? How, how do I make sure that I'm, I'm getting this right? And that's, that's a terrifying way. That's the, that's the slave-like way of reading the law. But when you know the lawgiver, you begin to ask, how do I please him? How do I love as he loves? How do I serve as he serves? How do I glorify him? And you start looking in his law for clues and answers to that question. And it becomes rich and meaningful. We see this in the life of Jesus. Um, we, we, when you, and when you do this, as Jesus did, people with a transactional relationship to the law who are trying to get accepted, they don't like it. Okay, you'll see this. And they'll accuse you of law breaking. So what Jesus heals on the Sabbath, right? And, and people with a transactional relationship to the law, just can I be accepted relationship, are like, wrong, right? That's what happened to Jesus. But Jesus knows the giver of the law. And he knows the intent of the Sabbath. It was there to bless people, to give them restoration and deep rest that they could bask in the goodness of God and his creative power. It was established at creation when God looked and said, it is all good, so things should be made good on the Sabbath. And Jesus knew that. So when he worked to restore the man's hand, he loved the law more than those who were looking at it asking, can I be accepted? You see? Loving the law and the lawgiver can cause you to dive down deep below the bare letter of the law. And I'm not suggesting you take the law lightly. I'm not suggesting you just look and go, oh, it says love so everybody can do what they want. That is not deep. But I'm suggesting that you look deeply into it, know the giver of the law, and know how you could please him. Care about the letter of the law enough to know when it's time to go deeper. Uh, John was telling me how his professor um, uses this quote by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Did I say it right? Anybody? John's not here. Can't can't confirm or deny. Um, But here's the quote. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men, together the wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. And that, there's some real truth to that, right? Like, you don't just give people rules to make them love something. But my addition to that quote would be, once they love something, it can be really helpful to give them some rules. Because if you go to the people that yearn for the endless sea and just say, go, and they just jump on logs, like at some point you know how to, need to know how to build boats and it really helps if somebody who knows how to build boats gives you wisdom on how to build boats so that you can get out there on a legit ship that floats and enjoy the endless sea, Right? The passion, the love comes first, and then the law can be very helpful and beautiful and good. Jesus teaches that the law doesn't go away. You'll notice that when you read from him. And it should surpass, the, the right, your righteousness, righteousness should surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. 
He doesn't say do away with it, but love it. And you can only love it when you love the giver of the law. Finally, the third key relationship is to Jesus, the only true law keeper. And it's critical to see that in these verses and in the entire scope of Scripture, um, it's not you getting the law right or even figuring all this out. I opened with Abram, the great patriarch. God came to him and made him incredible promises, chose him out of his family, not because of anything he'd done. The law of Moses didn't even exist at that time. There's no evidence that he kept the laws that God gave at creation any better than his brothers. But God came to him and he received his role is to accept he was acted upon and surrendered to a gracious God. And this is true of our text. It talks about us being adopted, right? Adopted children don't go parent shopping, right? Parents choose children to adopt, and they choose to love them. We don't get our lives together or see God right or figure out the book of Galatians or cultivate pure doctrine, find the perfect balance of God and politics, stand for the right truths and reject all falsehoods, avoid all sin-stained things and make ourselves very impressive to God and others. That road would never, ever end. Sometimes I look at people who are trying to like not touch any sinful thing, you know, like, oh no, the maker of that once spit on his father's grave and so we can't buy that soap It's like this never ends. If you go down that road of never touching a sin-stained thing, you will never find the end of it. What you will find is there will be a cave and you will be in it all alone because you won't be able to touch anything or talk to anybody except here's the problem. Who's in the cave? You! Sin-stained, you. You can't get away. You cannot find the path. You cannot avoid all brokenness or anything like that. And sadly, many of us Christians spend too much of our time attempting to do just that and posturing as those who really get it right and condemning those who don't. And really, it's a denial of the gospel. Rather, in our text, look at how it works. We're adopted. How? It says God sends the spirit of Jesus into our hearts. And that spirit cries, Abba, Father. Not you. Have you ever, did you catch that nuance in the text? You don't start saying, Abba, Father. Like you, you go, God, you're my daddy. I love you so much. Wow, I feel it. It all feels good. No, it might not feel good. Fortunately for us, the spirit of Jesus gets it and is crying out, Abba, Father, to God the Father at all times. And that spirit is given to you. So even when you fail, falter, and don't feel like it, in God's eyes, it's, as like, it's just like you're Jesus, perfectly crying out, Abba, Father, to him, in perfect relationship to him. The relationship is given to you. It's not something you get right. It's a relationship that is given to you, and therefore we are transformed not by works, not by power, not by might, but by the Spirit of Jesus. And this is grace. So we're invited tonight not to your good works, not to anything you've done, not to the faith you figured out, but to the body of Jesus broken and given to you and the blood of Jesus poured out and shed on your behalf, given as a gift, given to reconcile you, given to adopt you into the family. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we 
prepare our hearts for confession, as we prepare our hearts to receive you, that you would embed these truths deeper in us. We really do need church every week, um, and we need it because we forget these truths. I assume many of us, if not all of us, have heard almost all of this before to some degree, but our hearts are prone to wonder. We need continual reminders, and God, you are so good, you're so patient, you're so gracious, that every seven days you've ordained that we would behold your body broken for us and your blood shed for us again, and that we could eat of your body and drink of your blood and be reminded who you are to us and what we are not, how much we need you and how much you've done for us, and that because of your grace, we get to be sons and daughters, though only Jesus deserves it. We praise you for this, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.